0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a
1: shopaholic, an outdoor
0: enthusiast, or
1: a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Once upon a time, the British royal family entertained themselves by going to the opera. Now they shock the world by a visit to Oprah. And with that truly terrible pun, courtesy of our producer, I welcome you to a special edition of The Rest is History with me, Tom Holland, and our royal correspondent, Dominic Sandbrook. And Dominic, we've decided to have this special edition because, yes. of course, uh, the bombshell news that's uh, come from California, the uh, the interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Um and basically, um, I guess the idea is that uh, every so often uh, something will happen in the news that has such a kind of, sheds such an interesting light on the kind of broader sweep of history that perhaps we should just do a, a kind of guerrilla episode. So that's what we're doing. Um, and, and I confess it was my idea and you were slightly sceptical about this. So yeah. let me just, let me begin Tom by Royal asking Watcher, you, Tom Holland. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, first, all, we're, we're not talking about the rights and wrongs here of, of, you know which side we're taking, but more broadly, you as a historian of modern Britain—yeah—suppose you lived to a to hundred and you were writing the history of Britain in the 2020s. I'm yeah. <laughs> guessing, I'm guessing that you would include this episode. I mean, even now, a day after it, you would say, "Yeah, this is probably worth a chapter."
0: I would. I think because. um uh, in previous books that I've done, the wedding of Princess Anne, the silver jubilee, the obviously Diana's wedding, they've all kind of featured. So that, you know, it's always part of the national story, isn't it? The monarchy is woven into the stories that we tell about, uh, about the country. And that's, of course, why this is so incendiary. And, and, and I, you're right. I mean, even for people who absolutely can't stand the house of winter, can't stand the monarchy or royal stories, it's hard to avoid this story because it feels like, you know, it opens up lots of discussions about Britishness, about celebrity, about race, about class, about all these kinds of things, which I'm sure we'll get into. And I guess also about um, about America, because yeah, well, we did our Americanization yeah, podcast, so, didn't
2: so, we? which which went out yesterday, uh, and this, in a sense, is kind of a thing about Americanization. Um, I guess that the royal family had its experience of Americanization in the, in the '30s with. The abdication yeah, uh, crisis. And that's the kind of the obvious parallel, Wallace Simpson marrying Edward VIII and divorcing. But, I mean, slightly different, because her Americanness wasn't really the problem, was it? it she was the divorcee. That was the, that was the issue then.
0: Mm, I don't know that I'd go quite along with that, Tom. I think that being a divorcee wasn't, obviously, the bulk of the issue with Wallace Simpson in 1936. But I think the Americanness was an element as well. So because she was American, she was seen as a kind of parvenu, as an outsider as a bit vulgar. I mean, that's always been the sort of British, slightly condescending view of Americans, hasn't it? And, I mean, we were talking in our Americanization podcast about American society heiresses coming to, you know, the sort of Henry James novel characters, these women coming over and getting themselves um, entitled, I mean, literally, well, titled um, British husbands. And Wallace Simpson was seen at the time as the sort of culmination of that story. And obviously there's a slight element of that with this story as well. The fa- I mean, I think Meghan's Americanness is key to the kind of culture clash as much as anything. And I,
2: I think, I mean, I think it's, re- that's why I think this is actually a, a really fantastic story. Um, I, have, you, have you come across um, a, a book by uh, the former Portuguese uh, Europe minister, Bruno Massange? Um, I, I, I have
0: seen it. Yeah, uh, Eurasia. I, I, he writes about the Dawn of Eurasia. Is that his, is that his book? Yeah, but he, he, his of? most
2: recent book was on uh, is on America, and he he posits this I, I think brilliant thesis that what's happened between Reagan and Trump is that Reagan kind of brought the the, the glamour of Hollywood and, and the methods of Hollywood to to Washington, but Trump basically um, he he kind of brought Washington into the orbit of mass entertainment and essentially created a kind of fantasy version of America that lots and lots of Americans found more compelling than the reality, and that basically with um, social media and cable TV and everything, you can basically, as an American, inhabit a complete world of fantasy, and reality barely kind of intrudes. And, you know, both on the left and the right, people construct entire (laughs) kind of fantasies about what America is. And in a sense, Megan is a kind of... Representative of that because she's from you know she's 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 from the, the the entertainment industry which historically has been a kind of great motor of Americanization, and she essentially has brought that kind of fantasy idea to Britain and the idea of becoming a princess. You know, she compared herself to The Little Mermaid. I mean, everything everything is kind of drawn from the world of movies and TV dramas and melodramas and things like that. And usually when people like that come into the orbit of the royal family, they get crushed by it. Diana would be the obvious example. I mean, she had, had fantasies about, you know, her prince, Prince Charming, and it all went horribly wrong, and she was crushed by it. But because Meghan comes bringing behind her the heft of this enormous entertainment industry and more importantly the this the the kind of the ability to 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 see the world through the prism of the entertainment industry it's run crash into the british variant of that which is essentially a kind of royal one which again is kind of steeped in fantasy and 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 kind of incredible tradition and basically for the first time i think the, the british variant is coming off worse
0: well, I mean, I think it's coming off worse in the battle for international public opinion. There's no doubt about that. But the royal family, the British monarchy doesn't need to care about international public opinion, does it? I mean, there's only one set of public I think it opinion. Does. I don't think it does, Tom. I think that's balderdash. I really think that's balderdash because I think that's judging it by the wrong standards. See, I think that's judging it by the American TV, if you like, your American TV industry standards. I think that the, the the British royal family only really has to worry about one constituency, and that is the, the British. I mean, of course, they've got Australia, Canada, and so on, but it has to worry about the British domestic audience. But they've also got the Commonwealth, which is hugely well, important to yeah. so the Queen, and she was ta- you know, giving a message about that
2: the evening before uh, the, the interview went out. Um, and that's why the charge of racism is so incendiary, because I think that really does matter, I think it it obviously matters in, in, in the United States where it's an absolute lightning rod issue. But I think it does matter for the role that the Queen has played in the Commonwealth. And of course, very obviously for for, for the role that the, the royal family plays in Britain as a kind of unifying symbol.
0: Although the, the really interesting thing about that, Tom, now I was thinking about this yesterday about the racism charge and, and the race issue with the royal family. And obviously they've they there have been a lot of there's been a lot of commentary in the last twenty-four hours of Particularly from sort of the sort of guardian wing of the spectrum saying, well, the royal family is a symbol of colonialism and a symbol of, 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 of racial prejudice and all the rest of it. And yet, actually, when you look at the last 50 or 60 years, the institution in Britain that's probably been done more than any, I mean, the sort of venerable institution that has been most overtly non-racist is probably the monarchy. I mean, the Queen in the 50s and 60s at a time when politicians were you know keen to take a hard line on on immigration and not to be seen as soft on immigration the queen was probably the the one public figure who was most often photographed with you know black children or 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 greeting um crowds in in africa and and all that sort of thing and as you say the commonwealth is hugely important to the queen and the queen quite early on sort of you know um she sort of wrapped herself in the robes of you know I'm leading a a, a multicultural, multiracial Commonwealth, rather than a rather than a sort of white-dominated empire. You know, she went she went much further along those lines than the sort of Tory governments of the fifties and sixties would have done. So there's a kind of irony that at the very end of her life, that issue is the one that has sort yeah. of come back to dominate the headlines. Yeah, which, but that's precisely why I think that the charge is so
2: damaging because I think that. Um, the monarchy was effective as a, a, a symbol of a multicultural, multiracial Britain. I mean, I live in Brixton. I know Prince Charles has done lots of work here, um, very popular. But the kind of lurking suspicion now, I, I, I think it's I, – so I think that is incredibly damaging. And I think that it, it does have a kind of international resonance because if the monarchy – you know, the monarchy is a symbol of Britain – yeah, and if 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 your symbol is is seen as as kind of morally tainted, then that becomes a problem. You saw that with with Trump. I mean, it, Trump was very damaging his reputation internationally for for America because the presidency likewise is a symbol of of the, of the United
0: States. So, but there's also um, an element to this which is just, as, surely, Tom, is just merely the latest twist in the soap opera. I mean, we did a thing about the crown. We talked about the crown, didn't we, earlier in the series? Again, your suggestion, Mr., you know, I, I'm convinced that deep down you have a collection of tea tales with Princess Anne's face on it or because <laughs> you're constantly coming up with these monarchy themed podcast ideas. But, but, you know, the, in a sense, what's happened in the last 24 hours is kind of what you know, it's 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 what the writers' room would come up with as the latest twist in the drama. I don't think there's an element. I don't think people are walking up and down the streets of Britain in a state of shock, reeling with disbelief that this could have happened. I mean, my sense is that people think, well, this was obviously going to happen at some point. I mean, this was kind of in the script. It's been in the script for the last two years, and it was obviously coming. Do you not think? No, I think. I. I. I no, I don't think so. I. Th- I.
2: I don't. I, I mean, I think that there were kind of two incendiary charges. I, and they're incendiary because they have a particular purchase, uh, kind of generationally. So yeah. the, the, the 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 issue of racism is is one, and the other one is the mental health. Um, mm-hmm. the, that accusation that the, the royals didn't care about that, uh, and, and I think that you can see there's a kind of perhaps an element of truth to that because the the queen is the embodiment of the kind of stiff upper lip. The yeah. The, the, the quiet and sober commitment to duty, uh, never talk about things, just suppress everything, um, just carry on, um, keep calm and carry on. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the kind of ideal. And it comes up against an, another ideal, which is um, one, you know, I mean, it's basically kind of the millennial ideal, that you should talk about your problems and that having mental health problems is something that you shouldn't just bottle up. That and, yeah. and that talking about them, you know, you should be given a, 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 a decent audience. And so I think that um, this is slightly different because it, it's like a kind of generational depth charge. I think that people under 40 say, you know, slightly arbitrary dividing line, but I think it matters more to them than it does to people over. Uh, and I think that that's reflected in the polling, that people, let's say, of our age are... Yeah. Slightly less sympathetic, inclined to be slightly less. Sympathetic I think there's no doubt that, that there's a huge, there's than, a huge uh, generational divide, isn't there? I mean, I my, my daughter went back to school yesterday, and uh, I sort of asked, you know, do you talk about it? She said, oh yes. I mean, you know, of course we're all completely on Harry and Meghan's side. I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't even it wasn't even an issue. Um, so I, I I think that. This is in, it is kind of it, and that's why I reckon that uh, I don't want to tell you how to write your book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're clearly going to, um, but 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 as a way of, of kind of you know, and that's what, and you're right, of course. You're now going to tell me how to make this chapter more more interesting, aren't you? I know it. You're going to say now, Dominic, you should use this as a way into. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Tom. That's very helpful. Um, um, but would you not say, as someone
2: who is brilliant at at um, finding ways to to kind of shed light on broader social trends but this is kind of one of the reasons why this is interesting is that it does shed a light on a kind of what is quite a significant generational sense of evolution
0: yes it does and i suppose in exactly the same way as the diana story did in the 90s you see i was thinking about this in the context of the podcast we did about the 90s where we were talking at the end um w- about kindness and about emoting and about crying and these things as kind of you know uh, the 90s felt like a watershed. I mean, what if a watershed is, is not too much of a pun given the crying analogy. But Diana in particular. Diana is, interviewed. So the Diana is the, is the precedent for this. And I, and I think there's definitely an element to which this is the, you know, it's the playing out of a trend that you've seen, you know, you're talking about mental health or you're to, or, or the sort of the airing of your linen, you know, the airing of your linen in public feels like something that you do in a post 90s social media age in a way that you might not have done before. But all of that said, there's also a much wider context, obviously, which is you've got the abdication crisis in 1936. And actually, British history is littered with royal bust-ups that are as as incendiary (laughs) as they I mean, this is not... Possibly even more. But but
2: let's let's have a break. Let's have a break now and um, we'll come back perhaps to the longer view.
1: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
0: This
2: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Hello, and welcome back to our um, Megan The Restless History special uh, with me, Tom Holland, and Dominic Sandbrook with me. Um, So, uh, Dominic, let's put this in the broader sweep of history. Yes, let's. So we talked about uh, kind of the American um, brand of fantasy, but there's a sense in which um, the royal family is a kind of focus for a distinctively British brand of fantasy, because, um, you know, the the queen is head of state, uh, because she's been anointed uh, and the ritual mm. of anointing, she's anointed of God. I mean, this goes yeah. all the way back to, um, you know, before the time of Alfred the Great, uh, ultimately to um, King David and King Solomon. And <laughs> the Queen clearly takes this really seriously. Period. Yeah. And, uh, you know, well, and, I take and, it very and, seriously, and, Tom. And the Queen rules, um, you know, in a line of descent from the god Woden. So yeah. um, that is why she rules. Um, the royal family is different. The the, the idea of a bloodline is significant. Um, And that obviously (laughs) grates against quite a lot of things that people take for normal now. And I guess that one of the reasons that this is an incendiary story is that it does slightly focus people's attention on that.
0: Um, It does to an extent, but I think people, anyone with a sense of history knows that the royal family, the story of the monarchy has always been um, attended by kind of Hideous familial bust-ups, dynastic rows, marital disasters. I mean, I think about you know, for all that I read, this is this terrible crisis. You think you think about the coronation of George the when his wife, his estranged wife, was physically barred from entering <laughs> the church by men with bayonets while the crowd kind of howled around her, and she's so upset. This is Carolina Brunswick, who he's tried to divorce. He's accused her of adultery. He's Um, he's campaigned against her in in public. She tries to get into the coronation. She's barred. He has these guards not let her in. She gets soaked in the rain. She dies three weeks later. And then her funeral there's rioting and people are killed in the fighting during her funeral and the monarchy kind of sails on untroubled <laughs> into the <laughs> into the uh the safer waters of the later 1820s and 1830s i mean this is kind of part it's that it's that crown thing i think there's, yeah, an, there's yeah. always been an element of people enjoying you know think about henry the eighth and his wives or Edward yeah, the fourth and elizabeth Woodville. Yeah, okay. there has always been an element of people in that sort of taverns loving the scandal, the gossip, you know, there's that strange um, place the monarchy has in our collective imagination where it is both, as you say, this sort of sacred institution, but it also always has feet of clay and sort of lifting the skirts and seeing the the sort of the, 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 the dirt beneath, if you like, has always been one of the, the chief pleasures in life of being either British or English. But uh, okay, but to come back to this idea that the, the queen rules
2: as as God's anointed, as yeah. the, the the descendant of this kind of extraordinary lineage, that's why she rules. Um, and she and the whole royal family are kind of meshed into a distinctive understanding of um, the church of uh, of of bloodlines, ultimately of kind of feudal notions that. You know, have have survived kind of amazingly well into the present yeah. day. Um, you know, it's kind of like finding a, an allosaur in in the, in the happily roaming the, the the jungle in Africa or something. Um, but I I think that again, one of the things that's interesting about about Megan's take on this. Is is that to her it's incomprehensible? So, so two of the things, two of the charges she brought up, one or, or, or stories. One was that um, she got married by the Archbishop of Canterbury with Harry in a garden three days yes. before. I and, believe she may have
0: mistaken she, the rehearsal
2: for she, a, a for absolutely. A, and, a, the wedding. Uh, so the and the Archbishop of Canterbury gave her a blessing, and she thought that this was a, a wedding, but it can't be because of complicated details to do with canon law. I mean. Does Meghan have any conception of canon law? No. I mean, it's unimportant to her. And likewise, yeah. the charge, she said that, um, you know, that uh, that her son uh, did, wasn't called a prince, I think, because of whatever, racism or whatever. Whereas, yeah. in fact, it, it's because of, you know, complex, heraldic laws about who's, to a, patent, who, who's a prince. Letters patent back in the all time all of all George V.
0: Tom, well, Tom, think, Tom yes, don't yeah. tell me you don't take these yeah. things seriously, as
2: seriously as I do. But the point, so, so the point is, is, is that to Meghan... It's, it's yeah. incomprehensible and baffling and ridiculous and ludicrous and, and can only be explained by kind of darker motives. Whereas well, she was shocked because you know, she had to curtsy to the Queen, wasn't she? Which yeah. I thought was very telling. Yeah. But, but, but if you, you know, if you, if you are a, a genealogist or, um, a, a herald for the royal family <laughs> or, you <laughs> know, course. the Archbishop of Canterbury or, you I know, I don't how to Lord, imagine myself or,
0: as a herald, but, um, but,
2: but all this, all this kind of stuff matters hugely. Yeah. And, and that, and, and in a sense, Megan just kind of sharpens the problem that, um, everyone has who ma, who marries into a royal family because by definition, they are commoners and it, it's difficult for, so Kate had it tough. Diana notoriously had it tough. Um, but of course, you know, you've mentioned, uh, Anne Boleyn. <laughs> As yeah. Elizabeth Woodville, who are also, you know, famous examples of commoners who married into royalty. And
0: it didn't, and, you know, Anne Boleyn had her head chopped off. Well, they're slightly different examples. So Anne Boleyn is an executed because she's a commoner. Uh, and of course Elizabeth no, H- Woodville is not. She doesn't have her head cut off. And now both of them are, get into trouble. I think because in those days for a commoner to marry into the royal family, the commoner arrives with their family and their family expect a degree of patronage, you know, the Berlins at the court of Henry VIII. And that means they make enemies. So there are always people in the shadows who are sort of saying, "Oh, those upstarts, these provincial kind of hayseeds, who are now hoovering up all the, all the, all the sort of plum jobs," and that means that the commoner arriving encounters problems. I think the commoner, as it were, arriving now is more of a problem because the commoner, you know, the, they, you have to know what you're signing up for. So an example of a royal marriage with the commoner that worked very well, uh, and a sort of an amusing one is Prince Rainier and, and Grace Kelly, where. It's in Monaco, where it's clear that both of them sort of thought of it as a business arrangement, basically. He wanted an American film star. She knew exactly what she was getting into. She wanted, you know, she thought about it long and hard. She basically had two offers on the table. I think Hitchcock wanted her to be in Marnie and Prince Rainier wanted her to rule Monaco. And, you know, she had to decide which one to go for. And she went for it very hard headedly and she knew precisely what she was getting into. Um, I'm not sure that's true in this instance, and obviously it wasn't true in the instance of Diana. And that's where your fairy tale point is really important, because I think if you're blinded by the fairy tale element and you don't understand the sort of cold, hard reality of the institution, then, then you're going to be in trouble from the very beginning.
2: Yeah, but I think also, uh, I mean, again, get, looking at it in the broader suite, the the comparison that you can make between Mega and Di- Diana and everyone and earlier examples of commoners marrying English kings is that um, by and large um, it's exactly what you say that 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 if by and large kings marry other royal families people from other royal families because the expectation is is that they will understand the rules Um, and they are likewise generally coming from kind of anointed you know if they're French or whatever um, but at the very least they, they they are marrying into families that are ruling because of their bloodline so there's a the, there's an acceptance that in that sense they are equal. But if they're not, then that kind of unbalances it. And I think you can see even you know, even with Elizabeth Woodville, who Edward the Fourth it's a love match, it, it yeah. creates all kinds of chaos. Um and of course you know, it it that, that that unleashes all kinds of dynastic feuding. Um and in fact, you know, if if Meghan thinks that Archie's had it bad, um you know, Elizabeth Woodville's <laughs> children get murdered yeah. by by her brother in law, Richard the Third. So um <laughs> Yes, that's surely an unlikely prospect. I think that is an unlikely prospect. But, so on the topic of dynastic feuding, there is also an element of that, isn't there, with Harry's taking this, because he's kind of,
0: you know, I mean, he's kind of delivered a
2: a dagger into
0: the back of his father and brother. There's so much interesting stuff there, isn't there? I mean, mean, an amateur psychologist, or indeed a professional psychologist, could have an utter field day with uh, Harry William relationship. And part of it, Tom, surely, we were only joking about this the other day, part of it is the time on at elder brother, younger brother dynamic, isn't it? The dutiful, reliable elder yes. brother and the yes. wayward, so in reckless... My, so it, in the way
2: my brother has kind of run off and married a comedian, whereas <laughs> right. I, I've played straight and married you. It's, <laughs> <laughs> you are the Kate Middleton of... That, that podcasts. that's exactly how i've always <laughs> well, always seen the, myself megan the megan the yeah. of uh podcast but so on that on on that theme do you have any uh particular favorite examples of um uh
0: sons royal sons attacking royal fathers um so what is it the henry the henry the uh henry the second isn't henry the second yes he's, um, he's he's he falls out with all, nice, all his children he? Don't yeah. they, they, they all turn against him sort yeah. encouraged and sort of by wife. their mother? Yeah. Yes, Eleanor I Aquitaine. Mean, I, yes. I always I always feel sorry for him in that story, I think. The Lion in Winter, have you seen The Lion in Winter? So uh-huh. that's all yeah. that's all um all that sort of is stuff. It, is that the
2: one with um whoa, whoa, Dalton? War. That's
0: all you ever think <laughs> about, Dick Plantagenet. That's it, yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So um, the producer is sending a text that says Lear, and of course he's quite right, King Lear. Yeah, although that's not history. No, <laughs> no, that's
2: true. Um, um, can, I, can I tell you my favourite? Yeah, you've obviously got one fantastic- favourite. That's why there I must asked be the some, There must be some fantastic Roman ones. Yeah, the best ones is the Vikings. Cool. So Harold Bluetooth. Yeah. First Christian king of Denmark, um, who boasted of joining um, all the various parts of Scandinavia, which is why Bluetooth technology has the name it does. Ah, nice. I didn't know that. So in, interesting detail, so, I genuinely
0: you, learned something from this podcast for the first time. <laughs> well, there you go.
2: So Harold, Harold Bluetooth, uh, founder of Bluetooth technology. Uh, I mean, like all these kind of Viking kings who convert to Christianity, they only basically do it to make themselves more powerful. Terrifying yeah. figure. Uh, but he has an even more terrifying son, Svein Forkbeard. Oh, yes. Isn't he to do with K- Canute? Is he Canute's father? Yeah, so he's then Canute's, Canute's father. So Canute is, is Harold Bluetooth's grandson. Um, and Svein fortbeard is impatient, wants his father out of the way, uh, launches an attack, um, musters a huge fleet of dragon ships. Harold Bluetooth sails out to meet his son. There's a massive great clash. In the middle of it, um, Harold gets caught short. So he pops off his boat onto an island, um, pulls down his britches, has a dump, gets shot in the arse.
0: Wow. And, that's and is, is, he, is he killed? He's killed. He's killed, killed yeah. And undignified.
2: yeah. yeah. dignified. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think... And that's what you think
0: Harry wants to do to Prince
2: Charles? That's well, not for me to say. I'm not a royal watcher like you, Dominic. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I like, but that, I'm so pleased that so this, wait, this, this conversation, yeah. I mean, that, I think that is exactly where all discussions of the Harry-Meghan uh, imbroglio <laughs> should lead to um, the death of Harold Bluetooth on an island. Johnny Good. Okay. Well, I think we've, we've put this, you know, nothing more needs ever be said about this <laughs> issue ever again. <laughs> yeah, we resolved it. That's it, guys. You can move on. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> Thanks ever <laughs> so much. We have
2: a, uh, talking of uh, moving on, we have um, a, a new podcast on Thursday with the historian yeah. Katja Hoyer, and that is about the Second Reich. So not the Third Reich, the Second Reich. I uh, <laughs> hope you'll listen to that and enjoy that. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.
1: He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, at the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, said, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.